Yeah. Well, everything is relevant for this class, right? Or not. Okay, so we're behind. It's a good thing the time doesn't exist, because otherwise... What are we? Think, what? That was good. That was good. <laughs> um, and lots of people are in here saying, well, it's Simhastora. That's because it's all a cycle, right? That's what Simhastora teaches us, is that it's all a cycle. That it's boundless and yet not infinite. Um, okay, so there's, we're, we are behind. Um, there are various ways we can handle this. One is to uh, try to catch up. The other is to drop something. Um, and I guess those would be the various ways that we can handle it. The other is we could just have extra classes way on into the summer of next year. Sorry? Denial. Denial. Um, you know, my, you know my views. I think denial is a river in Egypt. That's. Yes. Now I really want a bumper sticker that says "Denial is a river in Egypt." It would be. It would be. It's actually. See, everything is relevant to this class. That would be relevant to this class because it would be really interestingly self-reflexive um, or self-referential. If it was not the Nile is a river in Egypt, but denial is a river in Egypt, it would be denying that denial is actually not a river in Egypt. Okay. Um, <laughs> a long pause, which is what um, Augustine is talking about. Are, what? Denial a lot, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So are you saying there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between denial and the river in Egypt? Yeah, <laughs> I would say there is. There exists an X such that X is denial and X is a river in Egypt. That's that's how we would put it in canonical notation. Um, there was it was really bad, but it was very funny um, on Thirty Rock a a joke about how can two things be right at the same time if one inherently must be wrong because the other statement makes it wrong. Uh huh. And what was the joke? No, it was just it was funny because it was a really absurd statement, and you were talking about. Oh, okay. Now I saw Thirty Rock, but I, d I don't remember that. The new episode. The one you mean this week's or yeah. last week? Oh, you've already the seen this first, week's. Uh, yeah, the first. Episode. Yeah, the, in yeah. the first episode of the new season. Where? When? Um, in the middle with Tracy. Yeah. And um, kind of and what's her name? Yeah. Where uh, Tracy told kind of, you know, you have to listen to your own and she's always right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, there was, like, right. How can she be, be right? right? Right, But Which, you're right because you're always right, right. But you told me that women are always right, right. So you must both be right. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said you were wrong or something. Yeah, so it was a liar's paradox. Good. Yeah, you should all watch 30 Rock, the whole. Um, all right. So um, there are a couple of things we can, um, well, we can see how far we get today. Um, what we could do is decide with what we're doing next is Macbeth, um, and we'll definitely do Macbeth because Macbeth is you know Macbeth. Um, the, we could decide not to do Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, um, um, but we don't have to. How about we don't have to decide it now? Some people, some people are eager not to read it. What did you say? No, I mean like when else am I going to be forced to read Joyce? So do you need to be forced to be? So you want to be forced to be. So see, this is that no. This is a really interesting psychological um, 
psychological situation also that we may actually talk about when we talk about game theory, which is when you want to be forced to do something that you don't want to do because you want to do it, but you don't want to do it. And therefore, the only way that you can do what you want, which is to do it, given the fact that you don't want to do it, is if you're forced. So you can vote to ask yourself to be forced to do it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, everyone read Augustine for today, right? You're all ready for your quiz on Augustine. No? Okay. <laughs> um, have we started Augustine? No, we're, we definitely can't drop Augustine. Augustine is like the bomb. Um, books 1 through 4 and 11. A total of five books. So you didn't what? And it wasn't in the bookstore? No, it was. Yeah. I have the book. Oh, but the syllabus is on the internet. The syllabus only says book 11. It doesn't say books 1 through 4? It says only 11. It does. It says no, I just three. checked it. It, it only says 11 for this specific Yeah, class. but for last specific class. Oh, I meant, no, I was asking about uh, Because the, so essentially you're, okay, if anyone in the next 15 seconds can make an argument out of Augustine for why it was okay that you didn't read books one and four, which were assigned for last class but not this class. Fifteen seconds, go. Time's up. Um, but how do you know that wasn't fifteen seconds? That was one to one correspondence of seconds to seconds. What were you counting? Is time counted in the real? How can. How can Okay, so basically none of you read book 11 or you would understand why I said that was 15 seconds, right? Or you would have an argument for why I was wrong to say that was 15 seconds. According to book 11, why isn't this an hour? Why didn't I just pause for, why can't I claim that I just paused for an hour? Uh-huh, okay, you didn't read book 11. Um, did you? You did. No, you knew you were supposed to. No, I didn't. You did. That's why I haven't. I was not a fan of it, actually. You were not a fan of it? I was not. It doesn't look well read. No, I really. guess it's not well read, but I did read it. Okay. Um, yeah. the, you can tell with my books when I really, really like them. That's when they look well read. And then they're beaten up, and there's Because you beat up what you like? You okay. see my heart. No, no, I believe you. Really like there are notes all over the margins. It wasn't smart. This was not my favorite reading. Okay, yes. Look at Well, I mean... <laughs> Wasn't it kind of like what we were talking about a long time ago, where you said uh, you could you could have an angel saying the um, pi backwards, saying pi backwards or forwards, and use that as a clock as long as it was saying one digit every second. Mm -hmm. I mean, I yeah. Guess, so time. So we All, right. time. All right. Look here. Let Augustine is great even if there's, there's a lot of stuff. It's very easy to space out reading Augustine um, if you're not very religious. Um, because what will happen if you're reading Augustine and you're not very religious is you'll get to the, oh, God, you were so nice, God, to make me realize, God, that love is only love for you, even though I didn't realize it in the blackness and stupidity of my heart, but thought instead that I could like other people. But you, God, were always there, even though I wasn't there for you. Um, so it's very easy for... Sentences like that, I mean, if you are religious, it's very easy for sentences like that to be completely captivating. Um, and you should take seriously 
when you read Augustine, the incredible emotional fraughtness of his writing. Um, Augustine is really the first person to write um, a description of his own interior life and his own interior um, anxieties and neuroses and passions and fears and hopes and so on in ways that are now pretty familiar to us, but that... Sorry? Like bloggers. Yeah, well, um, one wishes. Um, but what he... Um, he's great when he is not just being emo and all his, all his emo stuff is about God, um, but when he's actually made intensely anxious or describing um, intensely anxious making questions. And they're, they're, the books that I had you read, they're such anxious making questions in all of them. Um, this was something, I wanted to say this last time, but we didn't, but it's something that you find um, in Aristotle as well, although without the anxiety. So one of the things that we didn't look at last time in Aristotle um, was Aristotle's puzzling over what before and after mean um, when he's trying to figure <coughs> out about time and also what's called the moment of transition. Um, and what he's puzzling about um, is... The fact, do people remember what his puzzle about what the word before means? Does anyone? Yeah. You did before, haha, <laughs> but now you don't. He like, was making statements about all those sorts of words, all words that define time and events happening at different times. Yeah. Something. All right, do you guys know who Stephen Wright is? Um, who's Stephen Wright? Um, he's a, a very dry, humored comedian. And give, give, can you give examples of Stephen Wrightisms? Uh, um, That's what they're called. I think if you looked up Stephen Wrightism, it would have, have its own Wikipedia entry. I'm not sure, but I think it would. I'm blanking right now. Um, well, he says stuff like, why don't they make planes out of the stuff, they, the indestructible <coughs> material they make black boxes right. out of? Um, happy to fly. Sorry? Well, thank you for the answer. Um, <laughs> that's a relief. I didn't know. Well, I didn't tell it, it. He tells it better than I do. Um, but but he's he he says very he produces very dry paradoxes that you have to think to. That's not one of them, but that you have to think two or three times about. Um, but the. Um, kind of standard question that, all right, there's, cert there's certain standard questions. Look, how do, I, how do I put this subtly? There's something that you won't have experienced yourself because you are Brandeis students and you work hard all the time and spend all your spare time reading Augustine. But there is this thing called stoned logic. And what sometimes happens is that people sit around and wonder about questions that, um, kind of get them thinking, boy, that's really weird if you think about it sort of questions. And those are sometimes called stoned conversations. Um, if, you, if you ask um, about Galileo's question about how wheels can turn um, when the hub of the wheel is only going to take 
is only going to mark out half the length of the space that the rim of the wheel marks out, and yet they're um, spokes and they're turning simultaneously. Um, you can imagine that um, other people um, might be in some kind of mental space where they would freak out by that question. They would get freaked out by that question. Um, I'm putting this as subtly as I can. Um, so, sorry? No worries. Okay, good. Like in California. Um, or Maui. Hang loose. Um, so, there are questions like that that are sort of sometimes fun to contemplate, um, depending on what mood you're in. Um, a standard question of that sort is, uh, which maybe you can answer in 15 seconds or maybe not, why do mirrors <coughs> reverse left and right but not up and down? Because they're in front no, of you. No, just, 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 what? Because <laughs> they're in front of you, not on top of you. Okay, does everyone see that? I thought not. So some people will say, that's a really stupid question. And other people will say, that's a really, oh, shit, why? <laughs> um, and some people will start worrying that question, and some won't. If you're the kind of person who worries about that question, um, that worry can become annoying. Um, they're very, or you can, you can have different, different um, responses to it. And you may find yourself, if you're one kind of person, trying to give yourself an explanation and trying to generalize that explanation. No, no, it's purely conceptual. Some look, some people think there's no problem at all here. What is wrong with you? Why would you even think that was an issue? And other people will say, well, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting, but the answer is sort of obvious. Um, and other people, I mean, I actually asked a colleague of mine this, um, just as an example of, of um, stone questions about 20 years ago, someone who teaches here now, and he said, oh my god, why? Um, and he still doesn't know why, and he was very distressed by this. Then people like me think we know why, but then we sometimes read articles um, in philosophical journals that say, if you think you know why you're simplifying the question too much. Um, do you know why, Jennifer? No? OK, good. Um, here's another one. Let's, here's, a, here's an interesting paradox. It's called a paradox of imperceptibility. Um, if you ask a physicist, if you ask, ask an experimental physicist, which I did, um, I asked a, a couple I know who were among the thousand people who found the Higgs boson about this, and they thought it was a completely ridiculous question. But if you ask a philosopher, philosophers will say, uh-oh. So the paradox of imperceptibility is this. Um, let's say the two things are not exactly the same, but look so close, uh, so much like each other that you can't tell them apart. Um, what would be an example of that? Let's say an hour hand at where the hour hand on a clock is pointing at 4.14.36.2 at that time, 4.14.36.2, that is 14 minutes, 36.2 seconds after 4, and where the hour hand is pointing on the clock a tenth of a second later. So no one with the naked eye could see the difference between those things, right? So we could say, um, just generally, just so you see what, just, I just want you to get the concept of, you don't have to look, you, 
you can do it in your mind. Um, and, and I purposely picked a time that it wasn't. Um, you can therefore have the concept of imperceptible difference, right? Does everyone have that concept of imperceptible difference? Two things that are different from each other but imperceptibly different from each other. It's actually a Zenoian um, concept. Um, what something, what a blade of grass looks like um, one second after what it looked like one second before. Um, so it's imperceptibly different. We know it's different because these are continuous processes. The hour hand moves continuously. The blade of glass is, grass is um, growing continuously and so on. But if you take imperceptible um, differences by definition but also by experience, we can't perceive them. What I mean by that is um, by definition, you can't perceive imperceptible differences. And there are things that are imperceptibly different from each other, so that um, this is something that we actually have experience of, are things that are imperceptibly different from each other. So let's say, um, fairly abstractly, that you're looking at three photographs of a clock. Um, we'll call them photograph A, photograph B, and photograph C. And photograph A is imperceptibly different from photograph B, and photograph B is imperceptibly different from photograph C. Now the question is, photograph A necessarily imperceptibly different from photograph C? So you can't tell the difference between A and B. You can't tell the difference between B and C. Does that mean you can't tell the difference between A and C? Now, it can't mean that necessarily, because what you could do is take, let's say, a thousand photographs taken one second apart of an hour hand on a clock, and if you take a thousand, or let's say 600 photographs taken one second apart of the hour hand of a clock, um, and presumably you wouldn't be able to tell a one second motion of the hour hand of a clock. Um, because it's almost no motion whatever. But if you took 600 such photographs, you would have 10 minutes of photographs. There's a great um, conceptual artist in New York named um, Sam Shea um, who did this amazing, he, he does these, or did, he doesn't do any, do them anymore, I don't think. But he did these amazing <coughs> one-year projects in New York, one, um, my favorite of which was that he punched a time clock in his um, studio every hour for a year. So think about what that means. It means he never slept a whole hour long because he had to get up to punch the time clock. And he could never get more than half an hour away, away from his studio because he had to be back to punch the time clock. And what he did was he shaved his head um, just before he started the project. And he put a camera on the time clock, shaved his head um, completely, like grasshopper. Um, if you have any idea what I'm talking about now. Do you, do you have any idea what I'm talking about? No, Grasshopper, no. Kung Fu, the great TV show, great 1970s TV show. David, oh, well. You would be assuming correctly. Okay. Um, well, it's, a, there, it's another California thing. Um, so he shaves his head 
and um, he puts on the same outfit each time he um, punches the time clock, which is a factory um, uniform with so his with his name. Yeah, but that that means he's also got to be in those clothes every hour. Um, so he shaves his head, and every hour he punches the time clock, and every time he punches the time clock, it takes a picture of him. So what happened at the end of the year was he had 24 frames a day times 365, which is to say a six-minute or just over a six-minute movie at 24 frames per second of his hair growing, of himself aging a year, and so on. But the cool thing was that he just punched his clock every hour for a year. He was really glad when it was done, but then he did another. He did a bunch of other crazy things. Um, they were all one-year-long projects. Um, you can find stuff on the internet about him. Um, it's I can't spe his. If you look up Sam Shea, um, and I think that's T S I E H. Um, but I'll find out. I'm not now remembering how you spell his name. It's really Taiching Shea. Sam T S U I. I don't think so. T S U I. No, no. Um, you could look up Time Clock Project. And Sam Shea and Google will figure it out for you. Bing won't. Google will. Um, Bing is not Google. You know that's what it stands for, right? Which is self-referential, right? Because what is not Google? Bing is not Google. Is not Google. Because Bing is not Google. Is not Google. Is not Google. It's like it's like news, not Unix. What is that? There's a there's a software pro or a collection of software projects. Um, the G G N U. Oh yeah, sorry. Uh, it stands for news, not you. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, you know that's what Pi the email um, program Pine is. Is it really what it stands for? What? Bing? No, of course not. <laughs> Google said it stood for, but it's not Google. Um, what does Pine stand for? Pine. The, the one of the first email programs was called Ele Electronic. I think it was just electronic mail, um, which was then shortened to Elm. So that was one of the very first email programs was Elm. And then people came along with Pine. And what Pine stands for is Pine is not Elm. Um, yeah? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I found the person that people want to write down here. Yeah, Teaching Shay? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's H-S-I-E-H, -E right? No. Yeah, H-S-I-E-H. Teaching is his first name. Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. All right. So, wait, let's, first imperceptibility. Okay. No, a six-minute movie. Yeah, it's three hundred sixty-five times twenty-four, so um, twenty-four frames per second, three hundred sixty-five seconds, six minutes. Okay. Six minutes, five seconds. Um, so 
The paradox of imperceptibility, then, is if you were to take 600 photographs of an hour hand, one every second, you could definitely tell the difference between the first and the last. And you could probably tell the difference between the first and halfway through. So let's define an interval, then, if you just imagine it as you take a bunch of photographs and you show them to people and you ask them whether they can tell the difference between um, two of them. We'll define the longest, the longest imperceptible interval as where they can't tell the difference between photograph A and photograph B. So for an hour hand, it might be something like 30 seconds um, or 30 photographs. That is, that no matter how hard you look, you can't tell the difference between the hour hand at 4.06.01 and 4.06.29. You know, that's plausible. I don't know if that's right, but it's plausible. It would depend how big the clock was, um, how good the photographs were, and so on. But that's a plausible idea, right? Do people agree with that? Um, so we can then get three photographs, um, and we can agree with those three photographs that people can tell the difference between the two extreme ones, the clock at time zero and the clock at time two, but we can't tell the difference between time zero and time one nor can we tell the difference between time one and time two. Um, any two of those photographs, um, the odds are if you're given two of those photographs randomly, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Two out of three chance you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. One out of three chance that you would. Um, so the paradox there is if you can tell the difference between A and C, but you can't tell the difference between A and B, and you can't tell the difference between B and C, you should be able to replace. If you can't tell the difference between A and B, you should be able to replace a photograph of B with a photograph of A, or a photograph of A with a photograph of B, um, since you can't tell the difference. They look exactly the same. But if you do that, you won't be able to tell the difference now between the fake A which you've snuck photograph B in instead from photograph C, even though you can tell the difference between the real A and photograph C. So philosophers actually think this is a really hard problem, the paradox of imperceptibility. Physicists think it's complete bullshit. Um, and so my physicist friends, I said, you know, but don't you see how hard this is? And they said, no, you use instrumentation. And I said, yeah, but don't you see how hard it is to know whether the instruments are actually giving you a good reading or not? So the question is, you could, and I'm not going to give you my answer. I do have an answer to the paradox of imperceptibility, and I actually think it's a fairly obvious one. Um, it's a Kantian one, so maybe it's not that obvious. Um, I'm not going to give you my answer, but I think it's worth thinking about. Um, why, if you can't tell the difference between the hour hand um, at a certain time and the hour hand a tiny bit later, and the hour hand a tiny bit later after that from the second time, why you can tell the difference between the first and the third. Now, what you could say is, oh, but actually you could tell if you looked really, really, really carefully. So that's the answer. Um, fine, then do it in millionths of a second. Because no matter how carefully you look, you're not going to be able to tell a millionth of a second motion of an hour hand. Um, and then just expand it so that it's still so tiny that you can't tell the difference, but that you can tell the difference between the extreme states. Yeah? What if you can tell the difference between an extreme and a middle because the difference is that uh, 
the extreme is different from the opposite extreme, but the middle is not different from the opposite extreme. Well, that seems to be what you have to do, but the, but the middle is also not different from the original extreme either. That's the problem. Look, it, so my, I have a meta question. Well, yeah, but except it is in that it is so you could do it, You could do it with, with millionths of a second, do you think? Uh, well, no, you couldn't. You really couldn't. If you had, but no, you had. Is Kant is Kant's thing about the limits of our own mind and the, our own perception? I think uh, well, we may talk about this when we talk about Kant. But I, I'm really asking you a meta question, which is: for some people, this is oh my god, more bullshit, and for other people, this is oh wait, this is kind of disturbing. So, how many people are in the this is kind of disturbing camp? Really? You're not only a couple of you are slightly disturbed oh, by this? The mirror thing disturbed me. Sorry? The mirror thing The mirror, okay. And for how many of you is this, oh my god, this is just bullshit? Um, <laughs> um, okay. And some of you find it fine. You know that there's a difference between disturbing and bullshit. And this is kind of imperceptibly different from disturbing, <laughs> but also imperceptibly different from bullshit. Would that, is that fair? I think it's perceptibly different from bullshit. Okay, perceptibly different from both. All right. Um, the mirror thing can also be disturbing. Um, I think, as I say, I think there are easy answers to this, but it can be disturbing. Back in fourth grade, people were disturbed by, look, I have 11 fingers. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. 6 and 5 is 11. Right? You remember that? It's from Dr. Seuss also. What? What just happened? I do not remember that. Are you freaked out? I just don't know. Look! 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. So that's finger number 6. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. 6 plus 5, 11! If you have 11 fingers, you're starting with the wrong number. Yes. Um, thank you. <laughs> it's gonna. You, you really are smarter than a fifth grader. That's great. Um, or another one that freaks, that sometimes freaks people out is, um, wait a second, so a thermos keeps hot stuff hot, but if you put cold stuff in it, it keeps cold stuff cold. How does that work? So again, the answer, insulation is the answer, yes. So I'm asking you to, remember, to notice that there are questions that the answer means you have to you have to realize that there's a different principle at stake from the kind of natural or naive principle you would have brought into it. So that the thermos question, for example, do, do you guys remember being asked that question no. when you were very young? It used to be a bazooka. Do you, do you know what Bazooka Joe bubblegum is? Yeah. yeah. Okay, and you know they have, they have little cartoons? Yeah, it's that pink stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's awful in every way. Yeah, it's like pink rocks they pretend are gum. Yeah, it's the pink rocks they pretend are gum. <laughs> so they, ha they have these little wax paper comic strips and they also sometimes have questions at the bottom of the comic strip and that used to be one of them. Why does a thermos keep hot things hot and cold things cold? And um, the reason that um, a, a seven or eight year old might wonder about that, which I certainly wondered when I was young. I mean, I remember getting a thermos and being told that it would keep my soup hot when I went to school, which I never had my soup but um, supposedly would keep it hot. Um, but then um, I heard that you could use a thermos to keep things cold, and that did puzzle me when I was in second grade. Um, 
The reason it would puzzle a person is that the standard way to keep hot things hot is to put them on a burner in, on a stove or to put them in an oven. That is, the standard way to keep hot things hot is to keep them in, um, keep them next to a source of heat which <coughs> keeps the heat going. The standard way to keep things, to get things cold and to keep them cold is to keep adding ice. Um, but here is a thing that uses a single mechanism to keep hot things hot and cold things cold. And if you don't know about insulation, if you haven't learned the concept of insulation yet, that will be a puzzle to you. Now, it's not a major puzzle once you learn about insulation, but you have to rethink what it means to keep something hot or what it means to keep something cold from, what, from your naive view of what you thought it meant. Um, it turns out not to mean quite the same thing. So a lot of these puzzles, a lot of the puzzles that can keep people wondering, why do mirrors um, reverse left and right but not up and down? Um, why um, are things... Um, imperceptibly different from each other, not, or imperceptibly different from a third thing, not imperceptibly different from each other. Those puzzles are the kinds of things that um, if you find them intriguing, you may become a philosopher. Plato asks the question, again, you can find this a very stoned question if you like, um, Plato asks the question, as he's dying, he's about to die, but he, has, he, he describes why, um, I mean Socrates um, describes why Plato has him ask this question, um, why he became a philosopher. He said, well, when he was um, a young person, he would see two people, one of whom was a head taller than the other, and he would say, so what does it mean for one person to be a head, a head taller than the other person? It means that um, they are different in size by a head. Um, that means that John differs in size from Jacob by a head, and Jacob differs in size from John by a head, so they're exactly the same, because each differs from the other by exactly what the other differs from him by. And he said, you know, I thought about this when I was a child, and, you know, I thought I knew what it meant for someone to be taller than another, and yet I couldn't figure out a way to describe it that didn't immediately contradict itself because they seemed to be exactly the same, each different from the other by exactly the same thing that the other was different um, um, from the first by. Um, so those kinds of questions for a person who is temperamentally um, attracted to those questions, um, such a person will then start giving themselves explanations. And giving yourself an explanation for puzzles like that, finding puzzles where other people don't, and then giving yourself an explanation for those puzzles, or trying to describe things um, so that they seem less puzzling, that's a philosophical, one philosophical temperament. There are others, but that's one philosophical temperament. So what's, what Aristotle is asking is, he's trying to understand the, the, what the words before and after mean, especially when applied to time. Um, because it seems to some extent like a spatial word, before means in front of and after means behind. Or at least it feels like it's, you can correlate before and after with spatial 
terms um, before in English does mean in front of. You can um, you can st you can stop before. Um, 175 Riverside Drive and decide if this is the building you want to go into or not. Um, and you can say, well, it's the building after the building on the corner. And in both those cases, you're using those words spatially. Same is true in Greek. They're both spatial and temporal words. So Aristotle's trying to think how that means. And he says, okay, it makes sense that they're both spatial and temporal words. Um, of course, it makes sense that they're both spatial and temporal words. But on the other hand, it kind of screws up our idea of past and future because in the past, when one thing has come before another in the past, it means it's farther away from us. And if one thing comes after another in the past, it means it's closer to us. Um, Bush was elected president before Obama, so his election was farther away from us than Obama's election. Um, but someone will be elected president after Obama, if not this year, then in 2016. So their election will be after Obama was president. In the past, before means, means or correlates with spatially farther away from <coughs> us. But in the future, before correlates with spatially closer to us. And so Aristotle um, starts wondering about that, wondering about what seems like a very easy correlation between time and space, where you use the same words before and after in both temporal and spatial <coughs> situations, and yet they turn out to be spatially different when applied to the past from when applied to the future. So again, you can see how for a certain temperament, the kind of temperament that wonders about mirrors, the kind of temperament that wonders about therm thermoi, um, the kind of temperament that wonders about imperceptible differences, um, that this is another thing to wonder about and maybe another way to look for insight into the nature of time. Yeah, Luca. Well, I mean, I was going to say, well, as you're trying to thought of something else, but uh, I mean, isn't it kind of like, uh, you know, it, if you are uh, standing somewhere and so in front of you, whatever, 10 feet in front of you, there is uh, a line on the ground. And then 10 feet behind you, there's a line that is parallel to that line. Mm -hmm. um, and so if, you know, if there's a sign that says, you know, like, stop before this line, you will not go past it if you're following the sign. Yes. Um, and if the sign behind you, sorry, I was imagining it like as a car, so okay. going the same direction. Well, then the one behind you, before, will be further away. The that before. That um, before, okay. <laughs> the before before. Poorly, no, I understand I what you're saying. You're on the same page. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying, that there's right. a... And so, I mean, that that is just like, in our lives. But notice that you have to get motion into that, which means right. you're already getting time into it. Right, but, I mean... If you totally if try to spatialize time, you're going to have trouble. But um, like we're moving. Yeah, time. so you're just getting... To, yeah, but before and after then get messed up. Yeah. It just means that our 
Yeah, no, no, I think that's fair. But okay, remember the thing we talked about before a long time ago um, about the ordering of the number of the reals. So that what we said, I think we talked about this in the very first class, that um, if you multiply two larger numbers by each other, you get a larger product than if you multiply two smaller numbers by each other. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. So that um, 10 times 10, or 10 times 12, is larger than 5 times 6. Um, because 10 is larger than either 5 or 6, 12 is larger than either 5 or 6. So you multiply, you have four numbers, take the two largest of those numbers, multiply them together, you get a larger product than if you take the two smallest of those numbers and multiply them together. So that seemed an obvious fact about multiplication. And it's a fact that worked, except that if you went, if, if you started using numbers that were small enough, like negative 20 and negative 40, it stopped working. So the question is, does the fact that it stops working with negative numbers mean that it's wrong to say that negative numbers are smaller than positive numbers? And if it doesn't mean that it's wrong to say that negative numbers are smaller than positive numbers, why isn't it wrong to say that? In other words, there are a lot of ways you could, do people see that this could be a problem? That is that we have this idea that larger times larger is greater than smaller times smaller. So that seems a totally um, um, uncontroversial idea. But we also know that negatives times negatives are positives. And we know that because we were told. Um, now, it seems perfectly reasonable to say that as you go leftwards, my left, your right. As you go leftwards on the number line, you're going to smaller and smaller numbers. Now, maybe you don't want to say that it's right to call negative numbers smaller than positive numbers. Maybe that would be, would you say that would be a problem with language? Um, that we think of negative numbers as smaller than positive numbers, but that's only because we're extrapolating in a way we shouldn't extrapolate? Okay, but so would you then say that negative 10 degrees is not a lower temperature, assuming that lower and smaller are synonymous, which, which let's say they are, that negative 10 degrees is not a lower temperature than 10 degrees? It's really hard to be consistent with your own intuitions. Um, it's very hard to be consistent with your own intuitions. Um, there was a computer programmer who was trying to write a program, there are actually several, but um, who was trying to write a program that, that um, would uh, <coughs> calculate things the way humans did according to their own intuitions, and it turned out to be impossibly hard to do. But what happens is we have intuitions, and they make sense <coughs> until certain kinds of pressure are, are put on those intuitions. And then we get strangenesses. And Aristotle and Augustine, this is all going to be a, a kind of um, 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 endorsement of Augustine. Um, Augustine asks those kinds of questions. And he gets really puzzled by them. And in particular, the questions that he asks about time are questions like that. What Augustine wants to know is how is it possible that we think of time, experience time, as having duration? Um, that we can talk about something lasting a longer time than something else. Um, 
the questions that he asks in book 11 when he actually asks about time rather than saying, oh, God, time isn't a problem for you. I'm so happy for you that it's not a problem. You know, it's useful for him to say that about God, but it's not, it's not um, that time isn't a problem for God. It's that time is a problem for us. That is why it's worth reading Augustine even if you're not religious. And he's really good about saying what's a problem for us about time. Yeah. Well, no, he's, if you read the whole thing, he's already thought all of this through. But he's now asking questions. He's, what he's doing is a very, he's engaged in an incredibly intense um, exercise of introspection. And he's asking questions about um, human experience, that questions that are so basic that people almost never ask them. Um, and what he wants to say is, look, if you do ask those questions, they become <laughs> extremely puzzling. The answer is going to be something like the true nature of God will um, help see why you're getting these things wrong. T- look, let me just say something general, general about philosophy, simplifying but general. Um, there are two reasons that people pose philosophical questions. Um, you can, you can object if you want to. But just very generally, there are two reasons that people pose philosophical questions. Plato very famously said, and then Aristotle actually said the same thing, that philosophy begins in wonder. That is, that you look at the world and you are struck by something and struck by it as a puzzle. It's not that you look at the world and you see the truth and then you want to tell other people the truth. That, that's mysticism. Um, but the philosophy is you're struck by something in the world and you wonder in both the sense of, I wonder why it's like this, and also, whoa, dude, how strange it is that it's like this. That is wonder as in question and wonder as in get struck, get struck enough that you ask the question, you wonder how this can be. So generally, philosophical arguments or discourses like Augustine's will either be an attempt to answer a question that strikes a person with wonder, or an attempt to get a person to see that your view of the world is right by asking questions that will challenge other people's views of the world. So in some cases, philosophy will, a philosophical argument will, will begin, or a philosophical discourse will begin with someone saying, here's a puzzle, and, for, and what I really want to do is tell you why I think this is a genuine puzzle. Um, I have some suggestions for solutions, but what I really want to do is lay open the puzzle. So the great philosophers in general are the ones who ask questions who are great because of the questions they ask, because the questions are questions that it's really hard to answer. Zeno's answer to Zeno's paradoxes, no one believes. No one thinks, oh yeah, it's because there's no motion. Got it. 
Um, you're right, Zeno, the arrow can't hit the target. Why didn't I think of that? No one believes that. So, but what Zeno did was to ask a question that turned out to be extremely interesting to pursue. Now, Zeno asked the question for what you could call the worser of two philosophical reasons for asking a question. He did it in order to convince people that he was right. But what's important about philosophy is asking the question is more important than giving the answer. Yeah, the answer, if you finally get the true answer, that's important, but philosophers never get true answers. When they do, they become scientists. That is the other thing you could say. Uh, someone I know, um, a physicist I know, um, at dinner once, she's a theoretical physicist, so she, she, she knew the Higgs boson existed before anyone found it. Um, but um, she basically said, I don't understand why in this day and age people are doing philosophy. They've been asking the same questions for 2,500 years, and um, they haven't gotten any answers. Isn't it time for just let, it, let, them, let the scientists do it? Um, but she was totally wrong about the history of philosophy. Basically, what the history of philosophy is, is for 2,500 years, philosophers have been asking questions. And some of them have been answered. And the ones that have been answered have been answered by scientists. But philosophers asked the questions that scientists then answered some of. The ones that scientists have not yet answered are the ones that are still in philosophy. So you could say the question of Zeno's paradoxes was eventually answered by math and by physics, although some people don't think, um, still don't think um, they have been. Um, but it took 2,500 years to answer Zeno's questions. And it took philosophers puzzling over those questions for 2,500 years before those questions shifted into um, a form or an understanding of the world that's, that you could come up with scientific answers for. Um, philosophers, yeah? I, was just, I think that's a very common, like... Misconception? Yeah, well, yeah, I knew it. I, I think a lot of people say that, like, you know, is philosophy the thing that you do until you get to the question that you can hand over to science? And, you know, when I tell my, like, lay friends or whatever about the things that I think about, you know, is there a difference between, you know, the mind and the body? And they say, well, you know, the brain, right? Don't they, like, do all sorts yeah. of experiments? I'm like, yeah, okay, that's fine. But you're not talking about <coughs> the same thing. And I think what science, in defense of philosophy, I guess, of it being a pure discipline and not just a, you know, a lead-in to science is that um, science you have to beg certain questions. I don't yeah. know if you know what question begging is, but it basically is circular logic. You are trying to, you assert what you're trying to prove. So, you know, in philosophy and metaphysics, you say, what exists? Uh, does this exist? And in science, you say, okay, this exists. Yeah. Now what? And, and in philosophy, you don't want to take that, in certain branches of philosophy, you don't even want to take that first step. So I think to say that science, you know, my old, one of my old professors would say, you know, Aristotle, if we brought him back to life, he would walk into a physics class and faint. He'd walk into a math class and faint. He'd walk into all these, he would walk into a philosophy class, look over a little bit of the new sort of, you know, symbols and stuff, and he, then he would get up and teach. Yeah. Because philosophy doesn't, 
you know, and, and the same professor is fond of saying that philosophy doesn't make any progress because it's not the type of thing that um, you can't get very far without some sort of question begging. And some sort of question begging, at some point, you have to, you know, let the arrow hit the target. But science takes, I think, way more for granted, and I don't think scientists um, appreciate that because they just think the questions that come before that are not worth. I yeah, yeah, and I, I don't mean to disagree with you, although I don't mean entirely to agree with you either. Um, but where I don't disagree with you is that, first of all, science and philosophy are continuous with each other. Um, that's certainly the case. And philosophy asks the questions, um, thinks to ask the questions, which science sometimes offers answers to. And sometimes those answers are very philosophically um, deep and deeper than the original questions. That can be the case, as, as it may be with the theory of relativity, which has a deeper conception of space than the philosophers who asked the questions that relativity answers um, had. Um, it might be the case with quantum theory, which has a deeper conception of time. Um, so, yeah. Um, nevertheless, it's, it's the case that without philosophy, there would be no science. Um, and it might also be the case that without science of some sort, there'd be no philosophy, um, but the of some sort means a lot. But it still, I just want to make the general distinction between um, saying things as answers, asking questions in a semi-rhetorical way, which is what Zeno is doing. Um, that is, how can there be motion when Achilles can't possibly catch up to a tortoise? but motion seems to show him catching up with the tortoise. Therefore, there can be no motion. He's doing, he's doing that to show there can be no motion. The really interesting question is, what is motion? Not, ah, now we know, not the answer, now we know there's no motion. For Augustine, again, this is all, this is all um, plumping for Augustine. For Augustine, the answer is God. But what's much more interesting, if God is not your main interest, and he says, God is, but what's much more interesting um, in reading Augustine are the questions, not the answers. And so you can ignore all the times when he says, oh yes, the answer came from you. I mean, you can't really because they're actually kind of deep also, but a first reading of Augustine you can. But the questions that he asks about time are questions which are extremely difficult to, to um, get out of the conceptual place that he puts you in. He thinks really hard about the nature of time. And what he says sounds right. And if what he says sounds right, it's really, really hard for us to think about um, answers to the questions that he raises. He raises really deep questions, and he's worth reading for that. What he says about God, you know, what he asks, I, we mentioned this before, but one of the, among the things he talks about in the first four books are the size of God, and the question whether you can talk about more God in larger objects versus less God in smaller objects. Um, now remember, we actually got somewhere trying to think of God as a circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. Questions like that come up in Augustine as well. These are questions which are actually very, very deep questions about the nature of existence. Because 
we tend to think of existence as existence in space and time. <coughs> if God exists, we would then think God exists in space and time. Um, nevertheless, there are things that don't seem to exist in space and time. For example, the number three. Um, it's not like you could go looking for the number three and find out where it lives. Um, but it's also not the case that there's threeness everywhere. Oh my goodness, I just touched three. Um, so what does it mean to say that the number three exists? Um, those are questions that will at least um, get you to wonder what does it mean for something to exist? Um, if we say the number three exists, does it exist, is that the right verb to use, exist, um, when we say that this bottle exists? This bottle exists because look, but the number three exists because, well, because what? So it gets you to ask questions about existence and about what your own relation to existence is and so on. Now, Augustine just uses God instead of the number three for reasons that, that, that matter, that are not insignificant. But he does ask questions that can be bothersome. And basically those questions are, if you think you know what God is, whether you're an atheist or not, if you think you know what it would mean for God to exist, then you might wonder how to answer some of the questions that Augustine asks, which is, is there exactly 9.5 ounces of God in this bottle? Um, that is 9.5 fluid ounces, 9.5 um, ounces of volume. Is that how much God there is in this bottle? Now, you don't have to believe in God to, to wonder whether, if you believed in God, you would say that there's 9.5 ounces of God in this bottle. Um, that's the kind of question Augustine is asking. And um, it's hard to say that, yeah, there's 9.5 ounces of God in this bottle. That just feels like, come on. But it's hard to say there isn't, because if God is everywhere, then some of God is in this bottle. Um, he uses the example also of amputation, that if the body is if you are filled with God and then your arm is amputated, does that mean there's less God in you? And if there isn't less God in you, why isn't there less God in you? Again, you don't have to believe in God to see that some conception of what God is, whether you believed in it or not, um, is disturbed when questions like that are posed of your conception of God. So Augustine asks really good questions, and the really good questions he asks um, are, t are questions about time. Um, he asks the same kinds of question about time that Aristotle will ask about, and also Descartes will ask about space. Um, let's go back, though, since... Did you want to say something? Sorry, I think your hand was off a minute. Um, let's go back um, to Poincaré, though, um, since we didn't get a chance to speak to talk about him last week. Um, so did people read the Poincaré article? Um, it's kind of a... Um, argument with Hilbert. Um, and it's also, some of it's a little bit hard or a little bit obscure, but he's saying something really, really deep in 
that article, which is um, he's trying to think about, as a lot of people were trying to think about um, at the beginning of the 20th century, and actually all the way through the 20th century, um, trying to think about what math actually is. Um, what kind of knowledge is mathematical knowledge? And the problem is that math seems to be, to quote my 12th grade calculus teacher actually, the exclusive province of thought, which is to say that one theory of math is that it is in no way empirical. That is, that math is true whether the world exists or not. Math is true um, whether there are minds to think or not. It cannot be the case that if 1 plus 1 is 2, then 1 plus 1 isn't 2. That math <coughs> is simply, is purely an abstraction. <coughs> but also that that abstraction is true, what's called analytically, by the very nature of logic itself. That if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Or if A equals B, then B equals A. That that's a logical truth put in mathematical language, or maybe a mathematical truth put in logical language, but it's true on the order of self-evidently true. That um, math is all based on things that are self-evidently true and that don't need any world in order to be true. That don't need any calculation in order to be true. Now, the problem with this idea of math, which is um, probably the first theoretical idea people are given um, about math, as um, one famous mathematician said, God created the integers, and he went on and man did all the rest, but all that humans did um, was to see what the fact that the integers existed, everything that, 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 um, that flowed from that. They're integers, one, two, three, dot, dot, dot. And everything in math comes out of that fact um, and comes out of it as simple tautology. And what tautology is, do people know the word? <coughs> what is it? Um, where it's true for all cases. Well, where, where it's self-evidently yeah. true. Where um, to, to give one definition of... Um, of individual existence. Everything is what it is and not some other thing. That's a famous philosophical statement. Everything is what it is and not some other thing. Um, who could argue with that? Um, or to use another very famous philosophical question, uh, the great 20th century philosopher uh, Willard Quine was the good Willard, I think of him as. Um, wrote an essay called, very modestly, on what there is. <laughs> yeah, so here's the, he, it's only 10 pages long. Um, and you don't even really need the 10 pages. You only need the first paragraph. On what there is. And he says, the great thing about the ontological question is that it can be posed very easily. Do you remember what, how he poses it? The question is simply, what is there? 
That's the question of ontology. What is there? And he says, not only can it be posed easily, it can be answered even more easily. The answer is everything. So there it is. What is there? Everything. Um, so that is true by tautology. Everything which exists, exists. If you want to know what exists, the answer is everything that exists. If you want to know what a thing is, it's something that exists. So that's tautology. And the problem with tautology is it doesn't seem to get you anywhere. It's completely, serenely, unshakably true, but it doesn't seem to get you anywhere. Now, one theory of math is that math is tautology, but a very, very complicated tautology. Um, and that can be so. That is, you can have very complicated. Lewis Carroll actually loved um, coming up with extremely complicated logical um, questions that it would take a very, very long time to answer. But nevertheless, they were all, the answers were the same, saying the same thing as the questions. Um, that is, um, if all A's are B's and all B's are C's, then is it true or not that all A's are C's? Yes, it's true by tautology. Um, there's no question that if all A's are B's and all B's are C's, all A's are C's. Um, it can take a while to figure that out, but only because we think slowly. Um, that was Carroll's point. So one theory of math is that math is all tautology. You, you look at certain things which no one would deny are true. Um, a line is the shortest distance between two points. Um, if you add one to a, to a number, you get the successor. All sorts, all sorts of things that are clearly true either by definition or by um, inspection. Um, no one could doubt them. And all of math is just a different way of saying these things. So that's one standard theory of math. Um, Poincaré worries about this because he says if that's true, math isn't really saying anything. Um, it's not saying things and not saying them in extremely complicated ways, but still not saying anything. Now Kant, in a much debated part of the Critique of Pure Reason, distinguishes between what he calls analytical truths and synthetic truths, or analytical propositions and synthetic propositions. Something that's analytical is true by tautology, you could, you could um, say. That if something is analytically true, it's true simply um, by the fact that, that this is what, um, that, that the truth is already contained in its premises. Poincaré does this when he's talking about syllogisms. If all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, then Socrates is mortal because Socrates' mortality is already there in the first two statements, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man. Um, you're not adding anything. That's the standard um, example of a logical syllogism. You're not adding anything to that syllogism when you, to the first two statements when you say, therefore, Socrates is mortal. All you're doing is saying that the first two statements already say that Socrates is mortal. 
because Socrates is a man and all men are mortal. So you're not adding anything to it. That is a tautology. So all of math, some people think, is already contained in its premises, in its axioms, in um, the things that we already know and that in math are self-evident. Um, that all men are mortal is not self-evident. It's a sad fact that we learn during our lives. But that a line is the shortest distance between two points is self-evident, not something we have to learn in our lives, but something that we see immediately. So what Poincaré wants to know is, really, does all of mathematics just turn out to be its axioms? In which case, why do we need all of this other stuff when it's all already in the axioms? Kant, in talking about analytic truths, are saying they're truths that are true by virtue of logic and nothing else. Synthetic truths are truths that require some inspection of the world. They're stuff we learn rather than stuff that is already there in the original premises. They're things that we have to go out and look in order to see whether they're true or not. Now Kant controversially said mathematical truths were synthetic. That is, he says, there's nothing in the number seven and in the number five that makes it the case that adding seven to five is giving you the same thing as what's in the number 12. What he says is, Yes, 7 plus 5 does equal 12. That is true. It'll always be true. But it's not because of things that are already in the number 7 and in the number 5. The way it is the case that there's something in all men, namely mortality, and something in Socrates, namely that he's a man, that makes it the case that Socrates is mortal. So Socrates' mortality is analytical, analytically follows from the premises, but 7 plus 5 equals 12 is not an analytic, but a synthetic statement, according to Kant. A lot of people think that's BS, that all 12 is, is a bunch of objects, and those objects, you can get the same bunch of objects if you take 7 of them and then 5 of them. You'll also be taking 12 of them and there's nothing synthetic about it. But the question, whether math is analytic or synthetic, is a, an important question for the philosophy of math. So Poincaré is worrying this question. And his answer is, in fact, that math does tell you things that are not simply contained in the premises. And the way he does this, and this is the important thing that he's saying and something important um, that we'll be looking at, is through his praise of what's called inductive proofs. And he thinks the really crucial thing about math is that math uses induction rather than deduction. So what deduction is, is looking at some statements 
and figuring out what's contained in them. It's basically synonymous, not exactly synonymous, but um, basically in the same ballpark as analytic. It means taking something apart to see what's in it already. So deduction or analysis. Analysis literally means untying or dissolving the bonds of. Um, so what analysis does, it's the, it's the opposite actually of, of catalysis, of catalyzing. Um, so what analysis does is you're given some stuff and you take it apart and you see what's there. Synthesis or induction actually gets you more than what was there to begin with. Now, does anyone know how to do an inductive proof? He gives one, but there, um, what could you... What would you prove inductively? Um, you can prove inductively um, that... You can prove anything inductively, but what's yeah. an interesting one? Um, I guess uh, the... I don't actually know that one. Which one? Which is it? E is a pi r. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's interesting, but no. Um, I was going to say um, you can prove that... Uh, we were talking about this earlier, that the, the sum of odd numbers are all squares. Okay. Um, and um, just think about this. So you say the sum of the first odd number, the first odd natural number, um, one, uh, is a perfect square. And then you, in, in order to do the inductive proof, you then prove that for any sum of odd numbers, <coughs> rather for, um, for n plus one numbers, uh, the, that the that that will also be a perfect square, or rather, sorry, n minus, and minus one um, will, uh, that for, for n, <laughs> I, I, it's a lot easier when writing it down than to describe it verbally. Okay, well, but, look, let's, but, but, let's do an inductive proof. Wait, what was the one that was in the reading? Yeah, um, I think there's one that we've all learned that's actually somewhat easier and more familiar to people. There, he does get one in the reading. Um, but this is one that's more familiar, at least I think, to in American schools, and something that uh, people learn in different ways in high school, which is, does anyone remember the formula for the sum from 1 to n? Like, what's the sum from 1 to 7? Can anyone say? Right off? <coughs> you don't, don't add. Does anyone remember the formula? Or 1 to 15. What's the sum of 1 plus 2, et cetera, up to 15? What? Right. So the formula is the sum from 1, 1 plus 2 plus dot, 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 plus n equals n times n plus 1 over 2. Um, how many people knew that? Okay. How many people once knew that? And some of you, it's like, whoa, that's too cool? <laughs> no, Still no. Like, oh, oh, no, yeah, that's, that's blowing my mind. Yeah, okay, good. All right. Now, there are various, Pascal very famously, Pascal, who we're coming to, very famously figured this out. Do people know this story about him? Oh, yeah. He was sent, his, his math teacher wanted <laughs> a little peace and now. quiet, and the kids were all screaming and throwing chalk at each other and doing all sorts of other things, and they didn't have iPhones. Um, so he decided he would give them a problem, which is he wanted them to sum up the numbers from 1 to 100. 
Um, so he just said, look, whoever figures out 1 plus 2 plus 3 blah, 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 to 100 first um, gets a 17th century equivalent of a lollipop. Um, so Pascal, and I think Pascal was like 9 or something. So he looked at it for about a minute, and then he gave the answer. Um, pissing his teacher off no end, who thought he'd bought himself half an hour or so of, of quiet time. One plus two is three, plus three is six, plus four is ten. But Pascal figured it out immediately. In fact, he figured out this formula immediately. Um, the way he did it, however, is not the way we're about to do it. Um, the way he did it was simpler, naturally, than what we're about to do. We're about to do a proof by induction. So... Here's how, let me just tell you how a proof by induction works, and then I'll show you how it works. The way a proof by induction works, oh shit, we don't have time, but we will anyhow. <coughs> Sorry? It's true. The way a proof by induction works is you prove that if something is true for n, it's also true for n plus 1. So... Let's say that someone has a really lucky guess or someone notices that 1 plus 2 plus 3 equals 6 and 3 times 4 over 2 also equals 6. So they say, hey, look at that. 1 plus 2 plus 3 equals 6. Take that high number, add another number, add, add, go 1 more <coughs> to it, multiply those two numbers and divide by 2. That also equals 6. I wonder if... That's a good formula. So what you say is, okay, let's assume n times n plus 1 over 2 is the sum of 1 to n. Why are they assuming that? Because it's a lucky formula that they came up with. So let's assume that's true. If it's true, would it be true for n plus 1? So what we can do is we can say n times n plus 1 over 2 equals n squared plus n over 2, right? Everyone sees that? Now let's add n plus 1 to that, and we'll say plus n plus 1, but we'll multiply n plus 1 by 1, which will put us two halves, so that we can get the same denominator, right? Everyone has that? So we say n squared plus n plus 2n plus 2 over 2, okay? So, if we add n plus 1 to n times n plus n plus 1 to this, the question is, do we get that? And if you do the calculation, the answer is yes, you do. Which we won't know because we don't have time. So, you prove that if it's true for the number n, that if the, if the sum from 1 to n is n times n plus 1 over 2, then you prove that it's also the case that n plus 1 times n plus 2 over 2 equals this number plus 2n plus 2 over 2. And the answer is it does. So that's half of induction. You prove that if it's true for one number, it's true for the next number. That's half of induction. Like yeah, it, but it's same difference. Okay. So that, yeah, okay, he does it recursively, but it's the same difference okay. as he then points out. Okay, um, more tomorrow. Tomorrow being a Brandeis Wednesday.
Okay, try to read as much Augustine as you can for tomorrow, and certainly read book 11, even if you have to go back to books 1 through 4.